We were going to call this series Shiny Object Syndrome for the fact that all these new technologies come along and people get really excited about them. But we chose instead to call it This Does Not Compute, a podcast series about what's going on with emerging technologies, with the technologies that you read about in the papers, and we get real experts to come in and talk about it. I'm Jim Lewis. I work at CSIS. I'll be your host for this podcast. The business model of the internet for the last couple decades has been to trade data for services, personal data for services. And that is being shaken up in ways we didn't really expect when you look at some of the changes that companies are doing, governments are doing, the European Union. So it's a dynamic landscape. And to talk to us about that today, we're lucky to have Jane Horvath, who's the chief privacy officer at Apple extensive experience in the field, including being the Department of Justice's first chief privacy counsel and civil liberties officer. So great background for this stuff. Uh, good conversation. The regulation of big tech has become an issue around the world. How did we get here? Well, that is, it's, it's a interesting question. I would say the one thing that has really done something, uh, amplified the importance of technology is the pandemic. You know, more and more, we've all realized that our lives are so dependent on technology to stay connected. And technology has really rescued us through the pandemic. But I think there is a growing recognition that there are a few particular names that come up uh, repeatedly when we're looking at the technologies that we use. So what do you think are the issues that head up the agenda on this? I mean, we antitrust, we all know, and we'll talk more about that, but what other things should we be looking at? Well, my favorite issue, which is privacy and security, I think there is a tendency to lump all of big tech in together. There are acronyms, GAFA, GAFAM, um, FANGA, I mean, there are all kinds of different acronyms. And FANG is my favorite. Yeah, FANG, exactly. And my, my position is, at least with respect to privacy, you got to remove one of those A's because Apple's not like all the others. FANG is also the name of the guy who invented the Great Firewall of China. So that makes it even more appropriate. Ooh, this yes. is a good This is a good week to be talking about this, though. Why do you think Europe's become such a leader in this? I I think Europe started back in 1995 with the data protection directive. So they have been very much focused. They're a conglomeration of states. You know, you have 27 uh, different member states. And for them, the importance of the economy they recognize was the free flow of data. And so I think Europe has very much been focused on making sure all of their economies work together. And and so, you know, the data protection directive was one of the first, I, I would argue, on looking at the importance of data and the importance of common rules to allow data to flow. And I think Europe has been acutely aware in looking at different tensions in the economy around technology. What do you think the effect will be on, uh, on Apple and on American business of these rules? Will you have to change what you do? What, what are you going to have to watch out for now? 
Well, depending on where things come out, particularly with the DMA, we are quite concerned that a lot of these strong privacy and security protections that we have been able to build into iOS through the fact that we are a closed system and apps have to, in order for apps to be downloaded onto a device, it has to go through app review. And we believe that that is probably the strongest mechanism to protect privacy and security there is out there, human review. You can have a machine review. We do machine review on the Mac, but it's, you know, malware still gets through. The same malware can get through over and over. Whereas with human review, if malware does get through, it's not going to get through again. It will get pulled down and it's not going to get through again. And so, you know, the result of the fact that every app that gets on the platform has to go through this human review is we have 98% less malware than Android. And the major difference is Android allows sideloading. And depending on how the DMA comes out of the trialogue, we may in fact have to essentially make iOS just like Android. So it looks like now today in this discussions we had earlier with people from Brussels, cybersecurity is on their their minds now, but in the discussions leading up to this, it seems to have been sort of a secondary consideration. Why, why do you think that was? I, you know, I think that is a really very important point you're making is I think lawmakers have generally thought about cybersecurity post facto. And I think that, you know, where we're going in the legislative cycle, both in Europe and the U.S., we really do need to think about you know, we do environmental reviews, we do economic reviews. And I think that we need to add that step in as legislation is being crafted, that we're looking at it from both a privacy and cybersecurity standpoint. Because, you know, we are, we are as a country, in a low-level cyber war at all times. Uh, you know, you pick up the paper and there's a, there are various attacks and the ones you're not reading about are happening. They're just getting stopped. But, you know, from what we see, particularly with a sideloading mandate, is you're going to take a hard target, which is iOS. You can ask most cybersecurity professionals and they will agree. It is a harder target to get through and we're going to make it a soft target in the midst of a time in which we are under, everybody is under constant cyber attack. Yeah, I, the cheap metric for me is the price of an exploit, which yeah. is significantly higher in one case. So that that's that was a shock to me. It was so easy to buy. It's not that I would ever buy one, but, you know, do you think that there's a way to get cybersecurity more attention in the agenda? People now know it's a problem, but they don't seem to be taking it, what would you do to take it into account? I think there's the immediate impact and then there's the longer term changes that we need to make and we need to put in, you know, more of a formal review process, very similar to what you do in an environmental impact Mm. assessment. There needs to be a cybersecurity impact assessment that takes place and that whoever conducts and that resulting paper 
should be weighed very heavily in, you know, as, as lawmakers are looking at the laws they draft. I mean, technology is complicated as it is, and most lawmakers are not engineers. And, and so there can be unintended consequences. I don't think anybody sat down to say, oh, I'm gonna create a soft target out of the DMA, but I think it does need to be taken into consideration but, you know, I, I do think that going forward as we're looking at particularly very tech-specific pieces of legislation, including the AI um, package, you're going to have to have technologists at the table. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just, just because lawmakers are not experts in technology. And even I have a computer science degree, but it's been so long since I've coded. You know, I think oh. you really need people that are very up to speed on where the risk and what the technology is doing and the protections and all of that. So the other big development this week was the action in Congress. And you had the Senate Judiciary hearing last week, which saw the Klobuchar bill pass. Mm-hmm. But there were some significant questions from senators. And so even though it was bipartisan even the people who voted for it had questions. What was sort of your reaction to the bill as it stands now? I think my biggest, um, there are some privacy and security allowances in there, but I think at this point, the burden of evidence would be on us to prove that that is exactly why we put restrictions in and who wants to litigate that. And so my concern is because the burden is strict scrutiny, you would, we would have to essentially remove a lot of the guidelines, like the privacy guidelines out of our app store guidelines. For example, we have a guideline for your health data. Health is pretty sensitive. Your watch uh, syncs with your health data on your watch. You can actually download your health records, but we had wanted to open up the health API because we think apps benefit from being able to write write to the health API and read the health API. But as a condition to being able to call those APIs, the apps can only use that health data for health and fitness purposes. They explicitly can't use it for targeted advertising. And I'm not sure that we'd be able to retain that restriction there, given, given the restrictions put into the statute. And you know, there are a number of other privacy and security elements to the guidelines that I think we would have to strike. And to me, that's unfortunate. So the reaction to some of the privacy initiatives at Apple has been a little surprising to me. What do you think prompted it? I mean, surprising in the sense, so some of the things you put forward, say on child protection, struck me as eminently reasonable, but they ran into a lot of opposition. You've been in the privacy space for a long time. What are some of the issues here that drive people to react emotionally to these things? You know, I think if I had to sum it up, I think that if you took the universe of what we talked about and what we rolled out and what we plan to do, that wasn't the problem. I think the problem is that civil society and cybersecurity experts looked and said, all fine and dandy, Apple, but what happens if you're compelled to increase the scope? 
once you create a tool, who's to say it will only be limited to CSAM? And we did, you know, we put a lot of protections in there, but I think, you know, we've, we've all seen, we've, we've had, you know, San Bernardino where we were asked to create new, uh, a new operating system. So I think that was the biggest worry that whatever tool you create to, you know, fight against CSAM, you could be required to use it for things that are not so great. And, um, and so I think that is, you know, that's the role of civil society. Their job is to look around and see around the corners. And for them, that was the largest. And for the cybersecurity community, you know, they look for, they look for anything that can be a gap that can be exploited. You know, I think they were doing their jobs and, and it was good to get the feedback. It's, it's a tough one. It's a very tough one. So this next two questions will lead back to that, but it will start in sort of a funny place, which is the business model of the internet when it was commercialized was data for services, right? mm-hmm. and particularly PII for services. There's some PII, not all. It's worked really well, but it's become intrusive and people are uncomfortable with it. Right. So that's that's politics. I mean, I'm not sure there's a replacement, but the business model of the Internet seems to be changing a little bit in the direction of massive collection of data, data aggregation. How would you describe the business model today? You know, I, I think you you basically summed it up. I think when the Internet started in the first advertising that was launched on the Internet 30 years ago, it was contextual advertising. And it was something that people would somewhat expect. So I'm looking for shoes and I get targeted for shoes. And I think that, you know, uh, people, people realized that as there was more and more data out there, if you could connect unrelated items of data, but about the same person, you could be pretty good about predicting behaviors. And, um, and I think that, with huge amounts of data, with no omnibus privacy law in the United States, that there is a business that has flourished in the back end that many consumers have no idea about. So, you know, I think the important takeaway is we did launch app tracking transparency last year. And, you know, a lot of people said that we were against advertising, that this was an anti-advertising moment. But in fact, it was really a shine the light moment. We recognized that there was this robust data market out there. So tracking is about taking essentially third-party data, unrelated data, and linking it to your app data, or the app itself taking your data and sending it to a data broker. And so that was what we wanted to shine the light on. And we're if if a consumer wants their data to be used that way, they can say yes, but they should know and the app should provide the value proposition for why they want to do that. So I think there's been a lot said about it by the ad industry. It was not an anti-advertising moment though. So that, but that does raise this question. Why did you want to shine a light on it? I mean, I, I spend a lot of time trying to figure out how I'm being tracked for various reasons. Mm-hmm. It's, it's more of a hobby, right? <laughs> but why did, 
I have I have an idea of how this works. Why did you want to shine a light on it for consumers? Because privacy is a it's a it's one of our corporate values, and we're always looking to see what areas are potentially problematic for privacy. So, ten years ago, it was location access to your location API. Apps were accessing it; they weren't asking your permission. And so we created tech, you know, through technology, we essentially created a consent for your location data. And we did it, we did it through technology. So that location API, if an app wants to track your location, that location API stays outside of the ability for the app to actually technically access it till you say yes. So, you know, we're constantly looking at areas where consumers don't understand what's happening with their data. And with the advertising identifier, which is one of the things that is technically controlled by this app tracking transparency, when we originally launched it, there was an ability to opt out. But we felt that consumers, um, and originally it was literally you could tell an app not to track you. And apps were not really abiding by that signal. So then the next version of it was when you opted out, it reset the IDFA to all zeros. But we felt like consumers still didn't understand this vast data market that was growing around them. And by putting it as an opt out, people were not seeing it. So we raised it to the level of all of our other app level consents. So, you know, there's location, microphone, motion uh, sensor, all of those. And now app tracking transparency is yet another that you can look at and you can go in and at one point you can say no to an app and you go, can go back in and revisit your decision just like all of those other choices. And I would encourage all of your listeners to do what I call a monthly privacy hygiene. Go into settings, privacy, and look at all the permissions that you have granted to different apps and determine whether you still want to grant them that permission because it's at your fingertips. And so what we try to do at Apple is create controls that consumers can use. This is a Nancy Reagan moment because my answer to your your consumer hygiene month is just say no, right? But <laughs> but you, you, there's things you don't get, right? So certainly some of the mapping and navigation apps, some of the fitness restaurant apps. apps if you want to find a nearby restaurant, it's yeah. a lot harder to type an address in and say, oh, I will let the app use my location while I'm using the app. Oh, it's not that hard, but, but yeah, that's, so that's the trade-off here. And some people would say that the Apple's willing to do this because it doesn't affect your business model as much as it affects others. Is that fair? I, I sit on the, I'm the chief privacy officer. I work very, very closely with the privacy engineering team and we're not looking at business models. We're really focused very highly on four main criteria data minimization, on-device processing, transparency and choice, which this is, and security. So when we're counseling on products, we're not looking and thinking, oh, this is going to put us in a much better position than X over there. 
we're really looking at this really from the window of privacy. The privacy engineers report up to the SVP of engineering and my teams report up through the general counsel. So we're really looking at it from a policy, legal, and engineering standpoint. Very focused on privacy, though. So how much of this problem here? So I, I would argue that tech governance has become the issue of the year and maybe of the decade, right, around the world. And so you look at India, Chinese have their own approach, like it or dislike it. I've talked to them. They want to regulate technology. Uh, and they, in fact, they... We, we may not like all their motives, but some of them are similar, right? How much of the problem here is the lack of oversight for data collection and use that grew out of that first business model and the resistance from the private sector for at least a decade to any sort of privacy regulation? I think that is very problematic. I think we do need an omnibus privacy law. In the states right now are very active in the privacy mm -hmm. in, in passing laws, but it only takes looking back to the European directive that I was talking about earlier. Originally, that first directive was put in place to allow the free flow of data across the union. So they wanted one common set of principles that each member state would abide by. And unfortunately, about 10 years ago, or maybe even longer, they realized that each member state was implementing the directive differently. And it, instead of encouraging the free flow of data, there would be different levels of protection of data in each member state. And so they passed a regulation. It's a uniform law across every member state. So in the US, we're in that part now where we're creating state laws that are not consistent across our states. So if we're looking at the advantage of having common data rules across the US, we're actually going in the exact opposite direction. So I would argue we need a robust, strong federal law evenly applied across every state so every citizen is able to avail themselves of that. Because if we don't, and we pass some of these competition laws in which you know, Apple can no longer put in place privacy restrictions in the App Store guidelines, and there is no underlying ceiling or floor to data practices, we're going to basically enable companies that were heretofore at least restricted in their use of data by the operating system controls, by the App Store guidelines to basically have free access and unfettered use of data. This is sort of a throwaway question and I've stopped doing it, but for a while, for the last few years, I've been predicting this would be the year when we get privacy legislation. Not predicting that anymore. What, what's, your, uh, <laughs> what's your guess on that is, what are the obstacles in Congress? I mean, they, I would have picked privacy before I picked antitrust, but where do you think we are in getting a privacy, national privacy bill? I think redress coupled with preemption are their difficult areas as more and more states have put in place privacy laws. What do you do about them? How do you ensure a strong set of rules at the federal level if you're going to move with preemption? How do citizens get redress rights? Is it a private right of action? Is it 
And I think those are all very challenging issues. Who is the enforcer? Those are issues that I think is why, why things are stalled right now. There are a lot of bills in Congress, as you know. Mm-hmm. But if nothing passes, what do you think will happen? Will the action shift to the agencies, to the FTC and to DOJ or... I think FTC is looking. I mean, they've they've on on they're on record at looking at doing privacy rulemaking. You know, that's it's yet to be seen whether you know whether there'll be a challenge to the scope of their authority there and how far they can regulate without you know some sort of legislative mandate. Well, I think I can answer that one, which is that uh, that's actually what I told the Europeans this morning. Is as you think about what you're writing think about the fact that it will face a challenge in court, right? So that's just my assumption here. FTC pushing its authorities, I understand it, but I don't know. Where do you think they need more authority if you're assuming you're in favor of them doing more? Well, right now the FTC has authority to basically regulate the public statements that you make about privacy and security. So, you know, the more statements you make, the more within jurisdiction of the FTC you are, but they don't have really, I I think it's arguable, I don't want to make a concrete statement, the ability to actually regulate practices that you have not made representations around, and at least in the privacy world. So, you know, the collection, use of, of data, purpose limitation, what can you use the data for, what is the level of consent you need? Or is there some other model? Those are all things that I think would be difficult for the FTC to write into rulemaking. You know, what we would think of as an omnibus privacy law. Yeah, I think that's where we're, we're going to be driven to a privacy law. In fact, some of the Europeans have told me, <clears throat> you know, we got tired of waiting for you and we're just going to move out on this stuff. So my bet is not this Congress, though, that with the midterms coming up, yeah. we're looking at probably a year at a, at a minimum in an ideal world. Well, we're just, we're an outlier. I mean, China has a privacy law, as you said earlier, they, the intent is there as well. I mean, and so China has a privacy law. India is, you know, marching towards a privacy law. Vietnam, I'm I mean, we are the outlier here. And if we're looking, and we already have the Schrems problem with data transfers to the US. And, you know, while that is really calling into question surveillance laws, I do think an omnibus privacy law would reset those negotiations because at least there would be a common level of protection between the US and EU on consumer use of data. You know, just as a footnote, I know a few people at the Cyberspace Administration of China. They're serious about privacy. It's maybe not our concept of privacy, but they they are not they're not it's not some evil ploy to increase surveillance. They don't need that. They're serious about privacy. Does does that affect your business at all in China? Do you we, do, we does privacy like come up? We feel like we're really good at privacy. And, um, you know, as we've looked at the PIPL, of course, there are some regs that are going to be coming out um, and interpretive regs, but 
we feel like we're in a good place um, with com compliance with uh, PIPL. I mean, we have a robust compliance with GDPR. We've extended user rights to all of our customers, regardless of where they live. So every single Apple customer has the right to access, delete, edit, and port their data. And so, you know, we, we feel that we're in a good place and we're a leader in privacy. This raises an issue that came up both in the Senate hearings and in the talks with the Europe, in the European discussions, mm -hmm. which is competitiveness and the effect of antitrust and privacy on competitiveness. And the Europeans are a little defensive about it. So when you say there's two levels to talk about competitiveness, the first is within sort of the Western markets. And the second is competitiveness with China, frankly. What's your take on competitiveness? So is that, does, is this, are these new initiatives like antitrust or DMA going to affect your ability to compete? I would argue yes. I mean, I think that our operating system is different from every other operating system. And one of the main differences, one of the main competitive advantages is we have 98% less malware than the alternative. And having a mandate that would require us to open up our operating system. Now we'll do our best to build something that is as secure and private as we can but it won't be as good as what we have now. So to me, that is going to be harmful and it will, it will hurt more. What would you want to come out of the legislative process, realizing it could take a couple of years at a minimum to get there, but what, what would be good to get out of a lot of, I had good head of steam on the Hill. They have a fair chance of passing some antitrust legislation. What else would you want? What would you, what would be good to get? I think if we're looking at competition legislation, I think we need to be laser focused on what we're trying to prevent, particularly in Apple's case, which would be self-dealing. You know, if you're looking at the app store, you want to make sure there's not preferencing. And when Apple is pulling an app down or refusing an app uh, for um, getting on the app store for privacy and security reasons, I think we need to be accountable for that recommendation in in privacy parlance there's an entire line of both theory and law within the gdpr that are you're not only you not only need to abide by G, gdpr but you also have to have processes and procedures in place to show that you're accountable for complying with gdpr so to me if we're looking at that in the micro in the in the viewpoint of competition, we should be accountable for the decisions that we make. And if we're self-dealing, then we should be subject to, you know, fines, whatever, specific performance. But just opening up the platform doesn't feel to me like that is fixing the problem at hand. And it's creating an entire new problem in privacy and security. So that to me is an unfortunate uh uh, forced error. So the words uh, transparency and accountability come up a lot. And mm -hmm. as a general guide to what yes. you'd want out of legislation, they're yes. good. But yes. what would you put, what would you put under those headings specifically? You know, just 
rough ideas. I mean, not we're not asking for this is me, not talks. Apple talking. But you no, know, I, I, yeah, <laughs> I think we have to be, uh, you know, willing to document why we make particular decisions, and that documentation could be subject to review, and we need to be accountable for those decisions we make. So if we say it's for privacy and security reasons, we need to document why pursuant to what you know, guideline and, and a lot more documentation there. And you know we do a lot of that anyway, it's just more informal. So in the app review process, it's very much a back and forth. So if you know, an app is not able to be posted, it's, oh, you have malware on your platform, you need to fix it. Or, oh, you're not, you're tracking, but you're not posting the ATT prompt. I mean, there's a, there is an informal back and forth already, but being willing to be more public and more open to scrutiny for those decisions seem like, that seems like the right way to go. That sounds kind of labor intensive. Well, I, if, if you're looking at between that and opening the platform to sideloading and throwing out the entire premise that I think a lot of people buy iPhones and iPads and Mac for is that they're safe and secure. That I know when I go and I download an app, it's gone through human review and I feel safe. And if there's a problem, Apple will, you know, make sure that it doesn't happen again. But once we open the platform up and a lot of people say, oh, well, I'm, you know, I'm really sophisticated. I won't download, I won't download a bad app. And <laughs> I'll just, I'll just end with the exposure notifications. In Canada, they used our technology, our exposure notifications technology, Google and Apple for contact tracing with COVID. And they announced that the app was going to be available in both the Play Store and the Apple App Store. And an enterprising hacker thought, well, this is great. I will create a lookalike contact tracing app. It will look just like the Canadian Exposure Notification app, but it can be sideloaded. And it was sideloaded onto Android and it was ransomware. So instead of having contact tracing, you basically had your data held for ransom. Now, of particular importance, that app never ended up on iOS. Why? Because it would never have made it through human review. So to me, that's just the stark place that we're at. So one of the issues that's come up, and it's certainly in the antitrust legislation, is uh, limitations on the ability to acquire smaller companies or new companies. Is that something that Apple does? I don't, off the top of my head, I can't think of any big, you haven't bought any game <laughs> empires I, recently. Jim, you're asking out of my bailiwick on, okay. uh, in the privacy world. I mean, we do do some, when we, we do an acquisition, we do a privacy <laughs> re review of the acquisition, but you know, it's not one that I can comment on. Okay. No, that's fine. It's just that the counter argument is that merger and acquisition is actually good for innovation, that a lot of people, a lot of entrepreneurs do a startup on the theory they're going to be acquired. And this is an incentive for them that reinforces innovation. I'm giving a sermon here, so I'll stop. But No, and I can one. add that you know, we're good at privacy and security. And as we look at, you know, as we would 
uh, integrate in a company, we would be focused on raising the level of privacy and security protection. How, how does all this fit into the larger competition with China? From the privacy and security standpoint, we're never, we don't differentiate between our Chinese, US, international customers. We're just trying to make a even level of privacy and security protection. So, you know, at least from the privacy and security standpoint, I, you know, as long as we can continue innovating there, it doesn't. But, you know, I, again, if we have to open the platform up, I think we, we take a step backwards. How would you build transatlantic cooperation? I mean, this is a crucial goal for the administration. You know, in talking to the Europeans, you got different messages, but I think most of them really want to find a way to come up with a cooperative solution, preferably on their terms. But, you know, they're, they're grownups. They know they'll have to make some concessions. What would a good transatlantic outcome be for you? Well, I think that we, we have more in common than we don't have in common. So I think the biggest issue here is something that the governments need to work out. So if we're looking at data flows and in the privacy space, there needs to be, and, and OECD is trying to tackle it, there needs to be some common principles around government access to data. It isn't something that companies can fix. There needs to be a recognition that there are a lot of practices in the US and Europe elsewhere that need to be examined and need to you know, have a common set of protections around them. But I would like to see us working on the free flow of data, free flow of innovation and information and not end up in a place where, you know, one or the other feels like they have to just keep one-upping regulations of the other's industries. But again, I'm talking from a privacy and security standpoint. Sure. And you brought up government access to data. And this has come up, I, I have a lot of fun getting to explain to people why the Cloud Act isn't really, wasn't intended to give Americans greater access. No. It's a hopeless, hopeless case. How much of this is driven by the, the fears of government access, particularly US government access? A lot. I think I have spent my entire career starting at DOJ negotiating the PNR, passenger name record agreements. Mm -hmm. And then we started the high-level contact group on law enforcement access to data post 9-11. Um, there was, you know, the information sharing between police stopped over privacy concerns in, not, you know, the Patriot yeah. Act. So I would say that a lot of what is driving this is a concern about unfettered surveillance I would also say that there is a lot, there are a lot of protections that are in place in US law that aren't talked about. They're classified, you know, because you can't, mm -hmm. you don't want to put it all out there because then you're giving a roadmap to the bad guys. But, you know, I do feel like this is an area where governments have to work together and be honest and upfront with each other. And I, you know, either there is a classified hearing at mm -hmm. the court you know, when the court is looking at adequacy so they can get the full picture. And um, again, I think I'll give a shout out to the OECD process. Um, I know it's, I know it's not always going smoothly, but I do think it's the right aims to have everybody, the governments in the room to come up with 
some you know common precepts around surveillance let me ask about the other side though because when you look at europeans european governments are not bashful about surveilling their own citizens no they are and not. the oversight mechanisms there vary widely that's a polite way to put it yes what do you think would have to happen in europe to get do they need to make i won't say who but there were some countries when i worked for the government that when i visited them we were always told beforehand, these are allies, expect to be under scrutiny. I, I what would you do? What would you I, I'm going to politically say, I think there's a natural tendency <laughs> amongst everybody in government to keep one's head down, to not draw attention to oneself. And I think that is happening across the board. Uh, no one wants to have attention. The US has a lot of attention right now because of all the Shrems cases. Mm -hmm. And that's why in my earlier comment, there needs to be an open, honest exchange between governments because it's not just a U.S. problem. That might be a good note to end on. Thanks for listening. See you on the next episode.